Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. It's not new to say that the nature of work in America has changed. Good-paying jobs in the manufacturing sector have been diluted. The service sector has exploded. And the gig economy is not just about Uber and Postmates, but even hard, brutal work has been gigified. For the men especially caught up in this change, the price is high. But so are the lessons and yes, even the rewards. My guest today, Michael Patrick F. Smith, is a folk singer and playwright who made one of the most dramatic moves imaginable from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to the booming oil fields of Williston, North Dakota, to participate in what he thought would be the modern-day gold rush. What he learned tells us a lot about work, men, and America today. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Patrick F. Smith here to talk about his debut book, The Good Hand, a memoir of work, Brotherhood and Transformation in an American Boomtown. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Well, it's great to have you here. The amount of culture shock that must have taken place from Williamsburg to Williston seems astounding. Talk about that that transition, (laughs) first of all. Yeah, I've grown up in uh, central Maryland on a somewhat disabused farm, um, but I'd lived in cities for most of my life, uh, including Brooklyn, um, where I'd been for about eight years before I moved out to Williston, North Dakota. But it is true that it's just a very, very different kind of culture, uh, a different um, group of people, uh, different political worldviews. Um, but also a lot of, you know, a lot of shared humanity. I feel like uh, some of the similarities were as shocking as any of the differences. Talk about those similarities, because in, in looking at them and as you write about them, we can learn a lot about ourselves and about what's happening in the world today. Yeah, I, I think on a really basic human level, people are motivated by a lot of the same stuff. You know, we want love, we want security, um, financial and otherwise, and we want to lead fulfilling lives. Um, you know, one funny, uh, funny similarity I thought was when you're in New York City, you know, everybody's very aware of being in New York and you kind of everybody kind of feels like they're in uh, they're in, you know, the movie about New York. Um, and in uh, Boomtown, it was kind of a similar thing. Everybody was very much aware that they were in the boom and that it was this kind of exciting gold rush atmosphere. Um, you know, the cultural uh, Williston was also a melting pot. I mean, I worked with guys in northwest North Dakota who were from Jamaica. Um, there's a, a big, uh, vibrant Native, Amer- uh, Native American culture there. I worked with a lot of those guys. And people were coming from as far away as the Congo to work these jobs. One one big difference was that in New York, that is kind of established already. And people have sort of learned to get along a, a little bit better. Um, and in North Dakota, it was like right on the experience of the melted pot, just as it was starting to boil. So there was, while there was a lot of um, conflict around it, but there was also real beauty and seeing the connections get made and people learning to, to learning to get along. What was it that prompted your move? Why did you do it? Um, I was definitely looking for uh, economic, you know, I was looking to make money fast was a big factor. Um, another factor is that I, I grew up in an abusive household and, um, you know, kind of under a lot of stress. And as an adult, I've found that I have trouble sitting still and um, I have a bit of a hard time 
um, being in, when I was in Brooklyn, I was in really kind of the most comfortable living experience of my life. I had a decent job and a group of friends and I knew I could pay my bills on time. And, um, what I found myself doing, and this is in retrospect, my realization, but I found myself putting myself in a lot of stupid, risky situations. And, um, I've learned about myself that I kind of calmed down and, and the higher stakes situations. And, and the question for me now is kind of like, how do I do that in a positive way? But this was something that I found I had in common with just about every guy I met out there. The level of the amount of men that would talk about their dads beating them up as the very first conversation you have with somebody was astounding. Um, so I think the book deals with sort of, in, in one sense, some of the subtext is about childhood PTSD and, and what that sort of means i'm not a doctor i don't mean you know but that's a shorthand i would call it ptsd what did you know about williston what did you know about the potential for work there before you left i had been following in the news for about almost a year um at the time it was really it was big and the new york times was running stories most of what you found online would tell you that you could go and make a thousand dollars a day you know even pretty reputable uh organizations were were saying that diner waitresses were making eight hundred dollars a day and so i really thought that uh, i was going to go out and just make money hand over fist and it, it really ended up being uh being exaggerated what was the reality on the ground what did you find in terms of the economic prospects one startling uh result of dumping a bunch of money into a town um in a very short period of time was that because of the population growth, there weren't, there wasn't any place to stay. And um, there just wasn't the infrastructure to support the people that were there. So the rent in Northwest North Dakota, while I lived there became more expensive than Williamsburg, Brooklyn became more expensive than San Francisco. <laughs> and so I was paying, you know, when I moved out, I was paying, um, I rented a, a mattress on a floor in a living room shared with four other guys. They were, I think, at the height, 14 of us in one tiny three-bedroom townhouse um, and uh, for $450 a month. So the economic reality was that everything was real, real expensive. Talk a little bit about the fact that because there were so many guys there, so many people looking for work, and it took you a while to find work when you first got there— that it that that it depressed wages. It wasn't the thousand dollars a day that that you had been uh, anticipating. Yeah, as soon as I showed up, everybody was saying, "Oh, you should have come here last year. You could have got a job right away." And um, all the encouragement that I got when I arrived was, "Well, maybe you want to wait tables or something," because they couldn't keep people in the service industry jobs or just the jobs that kind of um, kept the town moving. I mean, they were, I think three or four tops in, in about 400 miles before the oil boom. That's an exaggeration, but um, everything was a little bit, a little bit behind, behind schedule. You talk about wanting to find, uh, ideally wanting to find a job that was as, as brutal as possible. What were you thinking? I think that there was an element of me that wanted to be tested and wanted to find out what I was capable of. And um, I hadn't had uh, that. I hadn't felt like I'd had that test um, through, you know, I think a lot of men join the military for that kind of thing. And I think in our society, there's a lack of 
of uh, initiation sort of rituals that um, that kind of help people discover themselves. Um, and so it was I kind of took a wild swing at this and I just thought, well, if this is the thing that that um, that beats me, then that's then I'll know kind of what what I what I can do. Um, and uh, and I think it also ties in a little bit to how I was talking about my upbringing. What kind of job did you find? Tell us about these rigs that you were hauling around. Yeah, I had a job as what's called a swamper. And uh, it's interesting, an oil rig is like a skyscraper. You know, they're 160, 180 feet tall, the ones that I was working with. And they sit on a location for about two months, two and a half months, until they get the oil flowing. And then they're like giant Lego pieces or erector sets. They get pulled apart, loaded on the haul trucks, moved to another location, and then put back together. So I worked as a crane rigger and a swamper on the back of what's called a gin truck. My job was kind of to be the feet on the ground and to throw hooks and chains onto these metal pieces that in some cases were the size of RVs and fire trucks and uh, try to keep everything level, try to make sure the equipment doesn't get busted up, and most importantly, try to, trying to keep sure that nobody gets hurt. Um, and then putting these onto haul trucks, we'd move them down the road and then we'd we'd put the whole big Lego set back together. <laughs> and as you write about when you first started, you had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> no, I had absolutely no idea. There was, there was not my training involved sitting in a basement and watching VHS tapes for a couple of days. And um, they throw you out there to, to sink or swim. Um, and you really got to kind of, you got to learn the job as, uh, as fast as you can, because uh, it's a tough, it's tough. Tell us a little bit about the town, the atmosphere. It was a pretty wild place. I mean, it really was the classic movie version of a boomtown. It it really was. You know, it was sort of the old school boomtown, but with cell phones. And, uh, you know, um, so you had a place that was driving into town. I saw multiple cars and station wagons and trucks driven by people who had all their belongings in their back. Uh, in the back of the truck, I slept in my SUV um, for a, for a week or two, and there were guys crashed out in front of the job services office. There were people coming into town on um, on uh, Greyhound buses and sleeping in the park until they found jobs. Um, and with that came organized crime and a drug culture uh, and prostitution. So they were they were they were prostitutes at the bars. It was all kind of like a very open, openly transactional kind of culture. And it's, it's, uh, it's strange to be in a place like that, how normal everything everything becomes real fast. How long did it take you to acclimate to that? Oh, I think I'm still acclimating. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's a, you know, it's a funny thing because in some ways it, it happened immediately. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing where you just find yourself in a place and all of a sudden it's like, well, this is the place. Um, I remember I remember watching a TV show. I'd been in Wilson maybe a month or two, and it was some show set in D.C. with um, you know some kind of like power player TV show. And right. I just remember thinking, what are these people talking about? I hadn't seen anybody dressed in a suit in a couple of months, and and just in that short period of time, it all felt so foreign to me, which gave me a lot of empathy for people in the um, in the middle part of the country who just don't see their story being told in a way that honors them. 
What was the commonality you found, the, the, the themes that you found among the guys that, that showed up there, that, that wanted to find work there? I think one thing that, that I realized and, and that the people who were drawn out there is that you're living really, really close to the bone when you're a migrant worker who hops into an oil field town and tries to get a job. So there was an extremity to a lot of the characters I met. Um, a lot of the people that I met, there was, uh, um, everything was pretty heightened because, because it was a life or death situation all the time. Um, everything had real consequences. And I think that, you know, that, that, um, that unfortunately now we all, people just kind of look at everything through this political lens. And um, instead of that, you know, looking at people through um, the, the lens of their, uh, of their hearts and their intentions and the fact that they're working their asses off for their families, um, these things are all shared you know, are all shared things. Um, and so, you know, it was just kind of basic human stuff. To what extent did guys stay? Was it very transient? People came and left? Did, did people stay and kind of want to settle down there? Talk about that. Yeah, I, I worked for a local company, which, and so I met a lot of people who had been, um, who did live in the town and who had stayed in the town and built lives. Uh, in the oil industry and outside of it as well. So I do know um, several people who uh, still live there and, it, and it's their home. Some people that had come from, um, from other places. Um, and um, at the same time, there's a lot of transient people too. So it's, hard, it's been harder to keep track of those guys, even with social media and everything. And, you know, one guy I spent a lot of time with... Um, went to prison and um you know a couple people i knew out there have passed away um and and it's 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 a hard it's a hard lifestyle did you talk about your background as as an artist as a musician as an as a stage actor <laughs> i did um <laughs> you know i i i i resolved never to lie to anybody about anything but i also didn't always volunteer that information <laughs> um one one thing that was funny was that I was I, because I was kind of such a weirdo, um, it almost gave me a little bit of a pass in ways. It was like like you know talking about the theater with people and uh, and then just saying, oh, well, whatever. They didn't <laughs> they didn't necessarily understand it, but they weren't going to hold it against me. <laughs> when did, when did you decide that you were going to write about this? So while I was out there, I was keeping in touch with um, friends of mine. And just by sending little email updates and my friends uh, became really enthusiastic about these email updates and were really encouraging. And it's something that had started as just a way for me to keep in touch with people um, ended up with me writing, you know, 15 to 20 page word documents and shooting these out to friends. And then surprisingly, they were reading them in their entirety. Um, and so when I left, I had a couple hundred pages of just my observations and I was you know, the book is based on, um, you know, stuff that I wrote down literally the day or the day after it happened. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no composite characters or no real fictionalization of anything. I do change the names of people because I don't want to get them in trouble. But uh, right. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> Talk about the way in which Williston 
was changing. You you talked about how a bunch of guys said, "Yeah, oh, you should have been here last year." How did the place? How did it continually change? Well, I think it had been, um, you know, it had been a small, primarily farming community that also had oil, an oil field industry. They were, you know, ten to twelve thousand people in it in two thousand eight, and then it ballooned. Um, and some of the old stories about uh, boom towns were called mushroom cities because they grow overnight. <laughs> um, about a year after I left Williston, the price of oil dropped and um, people fled town. So you had all these guys who had just bought F-250s, uh, dropping the keys back off at the dealership and rolling out of town. Um, I was Last time I was there was 2017, and it had uh, become really kind of like a – a nice, a nice sort of um, chill little country town. Uh, again, was my was my feeling of it. If uh, if the world were open up now, I think I'd have, I'd be visiting back there this spring. And where did all those guys go? What was next for them? Some people sort of moved into different different industries locally. Um, other people scattered and went and went back to their hometowns and tried to make a go of it. There were definitely people who had, you know, been, for instance, working a minimum wage job, but they were in debt. And so they moved to Williston, made the money to pay off their debts, and then went back to the town and were able to work at a sort of low paying job in a place that had, uh, that was less expensive. So there are definitely success stories. Um, some of the guys that, you know, the the oil field workers, they were oil field companies were willing to hire felons, uh, which I think is a good a good thing, because um, a couple guys that I know who had felonies on their records had left town afterwards and they just couldn't find jobs anywhere. You can't get a job anywhere. Um, one guy who I became pretty close with, I know, is, is back in prison. He's sort of a you know, a victim of his own stupidity and also of the uh, prison industrial complex. Um, so that's that's one example. Uh, other folks, it's been a little hard to even keep in touch with. 10, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, what do you think you'll remember most about the experience? I think I'll remember uh, the friendships I made. Um, and uh, I think I'll mostly remember the friendships I made and uh, a feeling of pride that I feel in being able to accomplish that, that tough work. But for me, uh, it's definitely about the people, you know, I, I, I love one of my best friends that I made out there. Uh, I lost a couple years ago and, um, that's been a big, a big loss in my life. So as much kind of joy as I'm experiencing now, with the book finally getting out in the world, it's also coupled with an element of grief. Michael Patrick F. Smith. The book is The Good Hand, a memoir of work, brotherhood, and transformation in an American boomtown. Michael, I thank you so much for sharing some of the story with us. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate the great questions. It's been a good conversation. Thank you. You take care.